we're going to talk about what every Christian mom wants, and that's their kids to love Jesus and serve the Lord and grow up in God. So we're all going to talk about how to have, we're going to look at some insights today for righteous living or for Christian living or for right living. And, and of course, every parent wants their kids to live right. And we have a heavenly parent, and he wants us to live right. And when we start learning these things about living right, we see the value of living right. So when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, when we become a Christian, I know I beat this drum all the time. I'm not talking about you said a prayer one time half-heartedly and you never did anything with it for the rest of your life. I don't consider that Christianity. I'm not talking that you took a survey one time. There's 20 world religions on the piece of paper, and you looked and you go, I'm not Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist, so I guess I'm Christian. I'm not talking about that. You've genuinely given your life to Jesus. You know, you've given your heart to him. The Bible says, as we've spent lots of time talking about lately, that he cleanses us of all of our sins. Blessed is the one whom God does not count as sins against him. Wow, praise the Lord. And God does that through Christ. And so we get put on this new path. Remember, the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, not a way or an option or one of many, but I am the way. So when we get with Jesus, he's the way. We get on a new path. And so we're on this new path, and we're doing life on this new path. But you might have noticed, if you've been a Christian for two or three days, that you were not outwardly transformed instantly and immediately. That you still had some things you had to deal with. Now, Scripture tells us we are transformed inwardly immediately. We've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Hebrews says that Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, and we've got dozens and dozens of other verses that talk about what happens on the inside of us, but we want to work that on the outside of us. So it didn't happen. Our transformation may not happen instantaneously or immediately, but it is a process. And by the way, Christians, I really believe this. We sometimes search for perfection. And by the way, I'm not trying to encourage you not to want to be the best you can be or be soft on sin or any of those things, but we sometimes search for perfection, and we have perfection in Jesus, but in our outward life, God's more interested in this looking for progress, because when you search for perfection and you find out you can never get it, that you just can't do it perfectly in your own steam, then you get discouraged and quit. But if you start progress, it's amazing how it happens. We got a little neighbor across the street. He was just a little short, chubby guy a few years ago, and he was trying to play basketball, and it was really ugly. And uh, he was he was going to go out for the basketball team. So I encouraged him. I watched him for a little bit. And I said, you ain't never going to make it, so pick another sport. Um, no, you all like, did you? No, I did not say that to him. Uh, and then the other day I came in and told Darlene, I said, oh, my gosh, that little chubby kid grew up. He's now lean. He was out there juking it up, making some moves. I went, that kid has changed. So I told his dad and him, I said, man, you know, things have changed. Guess what? He couldn't look for perfection when he started. He had to look for progress. And if he wants to be a basketball player, guess what? He'll keep looking for progress. Next year, and next year, and next year, and next year, and next year, he'll keep adding to that progress. And then you'll look at him from day one where he thought, I think I want to play basketball. And you look at him today, and five years from now, if he continues, you'll go, my goodness, look how much that kid has changed because he didn't look for perfection at the moment, he looked for progress. Think how much we would change if we just looked for some progress. We just start making some progress and growing in who we are already in Christ. So the, the struggle kind of happens because we, we see that there's been a change. Our desires have changed. See, there are people who don't know Jesus as their Savior, and they have no desire to know Jesus as their Savior, at least not right now. You'll probably talk to people, yeah, 
three minutes before I die, I want to say a little prayer and go to heaven, sure. But I, boy, to live like a Christian and to obey the, 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 the conduct of Jesus and do all, it just seems awful to them. But if you ever give your heart to Jesus genuinely, guess what? A desire will change inside you. The psalmist said, I delight to do your word, O God. What happened? His heart was different. All of a sudden, you desire to know God. You desire to be different. You desire to change. And so this desire, then there's this conflict because you may have gotten very proficient and efficient at sinning. And that really happens. You get very good at patterns. And now those patterns have to be unraveled in our lives through our relationship with Jesus and through the word of God and through prayer and through you know, just practicing, having some progress in our lives. But the battle's actually a good sign because it means you've changed. You know Jesus. Something's happened in your heart. You went from not wanting to obey God to wanting to obey God. Now, this is much more than a self-help program. I really want you to know that. I'm actually not against a self-help program, you know, in life. If you found a good book that helped you with some problem you had, that's great. I have no problem with that. I don't think Jesus has a problem with that, as long as it doesn't violate Scripture or the principles of the Scriptures. But Jesus never really had any confidence in changing ourselves from the outside in. So as you start reading Christianity in the Bible, you see Jesus is always doing this transformation on the inside. If anyone is in Christ, if Christ is in you, uh, he talks about us abiding in him and his word abiding in us. There's something going on changing on the inside of us. And Jesus is always making a transformation, preaching, teaching, talking about inward transformation that then results into outward transformation. In fact, the, the key top dog religious people of the day, Jesus was always barking at them. He, he, he said to these Pharisees who were master rule keepers, he said to them, you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, if whitewash is a word, what the world does that mean? It means painted. You, you, the tomb, I went to the, to the cemetery and looked at the tombs. Oh, they're so beautiful. But when I walk inside them, they're full of dead men's bones. He said, you wash the outside of the cup and make it beautiful, but the inside's dirty. Jesus said, if you wash out the inside, you'll get the outside clean too. I don't know if you've ever been in a restaurant before and had a glass of water, and you take a drink and take a second drink, you look down and you see some kind of gunk there, and you go, ah. Oh. But then when you discover the gunks on the outside of the glass, you're happy. I mean, you're not as happy as if it had no gunk on it, but you're happy that it's not on the inside. So we even understand the idea that cleaning up the inside is of supreme importance, and Jesus did too, and he's working at this inward change. He wants to, to overhaul. Actually, I, I don't like that word overhaul, even though I just used it, because overhaul says, here's a piece of junk that's broken down, but I'm going to make it good again. Jesus doesn't overhaul. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. Jesus takes that junk on the inside of us and sends it to the scrapyard and gets rid of it and starts all over again. Darlene has had a passion over the years. She'll see like a, uh, an old farmhouse or something. She says, man, I'd like to have an old house and redo it. And I say, no, because my brother and family had bought old houses and redone them. Now, if you've ever done it before, you know this, don't you? Nothing's level. Nothing's plain. Uh, the, the plumbing needs repaired. The electrical needs repaired. You know, you say, I'm going to update the, the Wi-Fi. And the old house says, what's Wi-Fi? You know, it has no idea. 
I said, let's take a picture of the old house you want and have somebody build it new. Because I think it's better, me, now I know, if you have a historic home, I love them, they're cool, they're awesome, I just don't want to do any work to do it, and I don't have the capability or skill level anyway. So Jesus says, we'll take something and, and just start fresh and new. We're transformed. We're made new in Jesus. And when we're made new, everything's plain, everything's level, everything's balanced, everything's good when we're made new. And so that's what Jesus does. And so there's lots of verses that teach us that we need to not look at ourselves in our old way, but we need to see ourselves in a new way. So again, we want to talk about insights for righteous living or right living or Christian living or whatever you want to call it. So let's look at the first insight how you see yourself, how you see yourself. Now, if you can do this without a lot of difficulty, uh, can we get the back screen working? Um, if it requires us to go home and come back, don't worry about it, but if we can kick that on, that's fine. So, how do you see yourself? How you see yourself is critically important, and I want to say this again. This is not a self-help thing, because the self-help world will teach you Look at yourself, get a different vision of yourself, see yourself differently. There's a whole lot of wisdom in that, but I'm talking about a transformation in Christ. I'm now a new creation in Christ, and if you're not yet, today's your day to do that, to give your life to Jesus, and we become a new creation. So let's look and see what God says in 1 John 3, 1. I love this verse. I love this particular translation of it, too. It says, see what great love the Father has what? Lavished on us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. I like that. It starts to give me a good picture of who I am in Christ. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the, what? Children of God. We're the children of God. The children of God. So I want to get a different look at myself. As, what am I? I am somebody that God loves so much, he's lavished his love upon me. He didn't dribble it out. He lavished it. He, he smothered you with it. He, he, even, even about the love of God, uh, we had the pleasure of being on a sabbatical, and we, we had a person, she really loved the Lord. She was one of our tour guides through Greece, and she was Greek, so she spoke Greek. And we went to the scripture, and she says, you know, your Bibles, you translate that the love of God um, has been shed abroad in your hearts. She said, a great translation is this, the love of God has exploded in your hearts. I thought, Ooh, I like the visual picture of that, that the love of God has exploded. God's love is lavish and big, and he's, he's poured it upon us, and he calls us his children. So now I'm going to think of myself differently, because I cannot find my self-worth. Please hear me. You cannot find your self-worth in your accomplishments or your success. It's a bad source, because things can turn around in a moment's notice. I remember my oldest brother he was uh, in like high school, and he got his hands on a 1955 Chevy Bel Air. Now, famous 55-57 Chevys are a big deal. And he redid this thing. He, he had it painted, and he upgraded the engine. He changed the transmission. He did all kinds of things, you know, put wheels on it, did all kinds of beautiful, beautiful car. And his normal parking space right beside the garage, not in the garage, but beside the garage, one night a big storm came up, and right beside the garage was a huge fireplace chimney that we hadn't used forever that decided it wanted to fall over on his car. And so it just destroyed the car, totaled the car. Overnight, if he found his self-image in that car, the next day his self-image would be gone because that car was destroyed. Now, had we known 
at that time, because this is a 40-year-old story, how much that car would keep improving in value, we would have went and got it refixed up. But it became just a, you know, a junk car that got hauled off somewhere. So things can change in a night, and I'm not trying to scare you with that. I'm just telling you, that's the broken world we live in. So if my self-worth is in a, a thing or an item, that's, a, that's bad. We need to find our self-worth, and we are beloved children of God. I want you to get this in your heart, get this in your head. So our self-worth is based on whose we are. Did you catch that? Whose we are. Not who we are or what we have, but whose we are. And when we get our self-worth from whose we are, guess what? We're all in here. You believe in Jesus, we're all on an equal playing field. You may say, well, somebody in here drives a whole lot better car than I do. Somebody in here has a better home than I do. Somebody in here makes a whole lot more money than I do. Somebody in here, it doesn't matter. Because our self-worth is based on whose we are, not who we are or what we have. Now, who we are is important when we understand that the who we are is based upon whose we are. One night, that's probably about 40 years old, had the family with me. We're, we're heading out of town from the big town of Hope, Indiana. I make an uh, illegal move in the car, and cop lights hit. They pull me over. They said, sir, you know, do you know what you did? I don't know what I did. I just know my wife told me to do it. And I said, that, we, hear, we hear that a lot, sir. No, I didn't say that. I said, he, driver's registration, I give it to him. He comes back and he said, are you Everett and Phyllis's son? I don't know if I should, how I should answer that. No, they were well-respected in the area. He was a local plumber. I mean, Hope's got 2,000 people. You get this? So he was a plumber and a tobacco operator, and he, he didn't really want to work outside of Hope much. My mother was a beautician. By the way, I could have gotten none of us boys could get away with anything. She was a beautician, so she heard it all. She knew the wrong stuff we had done before we even did it. You know, it was interesting how if you got a mom that's a beautician, that's trouble. So they knew each other, uh, know the community. And so they said, hey, I said, yeah, I am Everett Phyllis's son. Said, uh, okay, well, hey, you know, just, you know, try to use that lane to turn, not to pass cars on. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll be sure to do that. And I have always done it since then, used the lane properly. And no even written warning because of whose I was. I was Everett and Phyllis's boy. And so even though I was 40 years old, I was Everett and Phyllis's boy. By the way, if, uh, if you're 60 years old and your mom and dad's still alive, you're still their baby boy or their baby girl. I just want you to know that. Don't think anything about that. That's a beautiful thing, actually. And so we get this significance from whose we are. We can't base it upon our success, our achievements, our possessions, our education, our endeavors, our travel, our clothes, our good looks. We can't base it on any of those things. And inherently, none of those things are wrong, but they are a horrible foundation for having our understanding of our worth. We're children of God. We're new creations. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Think about that. We are chosen. We are royal. We are holy. We're a people that belong to God. That's how Peter describes us. Not the Jewish people, although Christian Jewish people would fall in that category. He was talking to Gentile believers. This is what you are. And so that's who we are and whose we are. So you think, well, I don't know. I think there should be 
love and worth put upon our possessions or our abilities or all that. There's nothing wrong with being appreciative and respectful for the things God has blessed you with, but they aren't a good source for worth. Let me say it this way. If you remember having your baby, or if you've just recently had a baby, you have this baby, it's three weeks old, let's say. You are crazy about this baby who, I hate to be negative, that baby brings nothing to the table. Okay, nothing. If you had a family meeting and had some older kids say, everybody's got to pitch in around here. You got to start picking up after yourselves. You got to start cleaning up. You got to start helping out. And you went to the baby and said, what are you bringing to the table? It doesn't even know what you're saying. You know, it's, it's amazing. So the baby can't talk. The baby has no education. The baby has no possessions. The baby does not have a cool car. The baby hasn't traveled the world. The baby hasn't done anything. Why are you so crazy about that baby? Because of whose it is. It's your baby. You love this baby who is actually nothing. At that, at that time, the newborn baby is nothing but a need machine. A need, it needed all the time. If you work 80 hours a week and you're exhausted when you go to bed, your baby never thinks at 3 in the morning, should I cry? Because, I mean, mom and dad's been working really hard, and they got a lot going on. I think, right, it doesn't even care. Again, I want you to think about it. This baby doesn't even care about you, not on the level we think of care, and yet if it whimpers or cries, you're at its beck and call, loving and caring for it, which is actually a good thing. I'm not being negative about that. I just want you to understand that this concept, that's crazy. No, it's not crazy. We all live it out in the natural all the time. We put incredible worth upon the baby, and the baby, if it could process it, would realize, I must be incredibly valuable. I must be incredibly valuable. And the baby is incredibly valuable. So, let's look at Romans 6, 10 through 12. We'll find that the more we get an image of who we are in Christ, the more we will hate being inconsistent with that image. So if you see yourself as royal and chosen and holy and, and God's, when you behave differently than that, and you will at times, you won't like it. You won't like that inconsistency because you have a different image of yourself. In Romans 6, 10 through 12, it says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves. Now, different translations say, Reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, look at yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let, do not permit, do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body that you should obey its evil desires. What he's saying is if you see yourself as dead to sin, alive to God, therefore, now that I know this information, I shouldn't allow or permit sin to reign in my mortal body. So Paul's teaching these Roman Christians, you need to have an identity of yourself that you are dead to sin, alive to God. You are to consider, reckon, look at yourself that way. Now let's look at insight number two, the benefits of right living. God's the one that came up with this idea of benefits. You'll hear people say sometimes, I don't care about any reward or anything. I just want to do what pleases God. First of all, I love it, love the heart, love all that. But God's the one who came up with the reward program. So apparently he has no problem with you believing and trusting that a certain behavior will get a certain reward from the Lord. Because he's the one that came up with it. He could have easily said, here's what I want you to do. 
And you say, what am I going to get out of it? And he says, nothing, just shut up and do what I want you to do. But God doesn't say that. He says, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll bless you with that. If you do this, I'll give you this. Hmm, God's the one that came up with this. So what are the benefits? In Romans 6, 16, it says, don't you know that when you offered yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to what? Death. Or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Well, righteousness has rewards, which we'll see in Psalm 92, 12, and 13. The righteous will what? Flourish. Everyone wants to flourish. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow. Everyone wants to grow. We talk about that. We need to grow. Let's go to this conference. We can grow. We want to grow. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, which was highly valued and pricey. Then it says, planted in the house of the Lord. I think that's a good thing for us to do. And what you're doing today, you're planted here in the house of the Lord. So the spiritual connection to it. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Hmm. Now you can put on your assignment for the week to read Psalm 1. It'll probably take you 40 seconds or so to read it, if that long. And Psalm 1 is a great one to show the rewards of the righteous and the misery of the unrighteous. In Psalm 1, it'll tell you that the righteous, they... They bear fruit in their season. The righteous, their leaves don't wither. The righteous, everything they do shall prosper. The righteous, it's, it's all these blessings to being righteous. So, let's practice being righteous, practice and know there's a reward to this. There's a reward. I may feel like I'm suffering right now, but there's a reward. Now, the third insight is really critical as well. Probably should be the first one grow in our love for Jesus. In Luke 10, 27, someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you know the scriptures. How do you read it? How do you see it? And he answered this. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Love. Everything around love. Love God, love others. And by the way, we know this. We don't love God first. The Bible says we love God because he first loved us. Then let's look at John 14, 23 through 24. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See, there's a, there's, I taught a lot on we are perfect forever, we're the righteous of God, all that, and it's all true. But when people want to use that as an excuse to sin, like when somebody says, hey, Tracy, I don't have to, you know, have any code of conduct as a believer, I'm under grace, I'm not under the law. Well, if you're under grace, guess what? Grace teaches you to say no to sin. You can't say I'm under grace, so therefore I'll go live like Lucifer. No, if you're under grace, then you've been taught to say no to sin and to say no to unholy and, and evil desires. So grace empowers us to live right. So here it says, you obey my teachings. My father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. So we're abiding together now. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. 
Now, again, if we're not careful, we look and say, I have not always obeyed every teaching of God, so I, I must not love God. I must be, I, I must be far from God. And, and if you are not convicted to grow in the verse we read previously, because I am every time I read it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. I have never read that verse and said, I do that. I read that verse and say, I got some growing to do. I, got, I can increase in my love for God. I can keep growing in my love for God. And so I, I, again, I'm not trying to be soft on sin. I'm not trying to give you an excuse to sin. I'm just telling you that our whole lives are a growth process. Our whole lives are growing in God, you know, increasing in our walk with God, yielding more to him. We need to be more like him next year than we are this year. We need to keep moving forward in God. And so I also discovered something from the human side because you might notice you're still human. You still have a body, a flesh. I was thinking about this love for God and love in general as we humans experience it. And I started thinking, who are the people on planet Earth that I have been the rudest to? You know who they are? My family. My fa I've been ruder to my family than anybody. You say, well, why'd you do that? I don't know. I'm just telling you, you you're around, you, you love each other, you feel secure, and you can just be rude. But I also want to say this. You know who I've been the kindest and most generous to? My family. Those whom I love the most. I will give, and Darlene has too, sacrificially to our children. We most likely unless really prompted by the Holy Spirit, will not give sacrificially to your children. Now, that sounds like, well, that's horrible. I'm just telling you this is life. This is the way it works. And so we often are rude and mean to those we love the most and are also the nicest and kindest and most generous to those we love the most. Now, I say we keep growing in that side because I read a little secular quote one day. I thought that was so good. It says, now, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just telling you this is a good quote. If you must be rude, be rude to strangers. Save your best manners for family. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's so true. But we're not like that. But we should, I don't think we should be rude to strangers either. But I remember one time, I was in the computer business years ago when personal computers were just, you know, becoming the rage. And so I was teaching Darlene. She said, teach me how to use the computer. So I said, okay. And so this idea of a mouse and not a C prompt was totally, you know, new stuff. And so I show her how to use the mouse real quick, and I'm doing something. She says, what? And, and so I, do, I said, no, that's not right. I said, do it like this. And so then she's, I'm looking again, and I look back, no, 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 this is not hard. You just do this and do this. And then she tries again, fails. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, you just do this and do this. It's the simplest thing in the world. And she looked up at me and says, is this how you treat your clients? Uh, uh, no, I'm actually very kind to my clients. <laughs> Seriously, here's what I would tell my client, honestly. Hey, you know what? This is new. You've probably never even seen one of these in your life, so I get it. It was awkward when I first started using it, too. Isn't that interesting? If you must be rude, be rude to strangers. Save your best manners for family. So I learned and grew a little bit, but we just got to keep growing in love, even. We keep growing. And we don't make excuses, but we keep growing in our love for one another. So, 
Another thing I see, we were watching TV the other day. You ever see this on TV? Somebody's died, and some family member has just gotten in a fight with them before they died. You know that? And then they go, oh my goodness, the last words we had to each other were hateful and mean. So I look at Darlene and say, look, I know we love each other. In the event that we should have a hateful argument and one of us kill over dead, let's not waste one second of guilt on, oh my goodness, the last words I said. The last words I said did not negate all the words we have said to each other. Now, admittedly, that would be a bummer, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be awful. Like, oh goodness, I can't believe I said those things. And, and then I died, because that's more likely how. I told her, I said, I'm very selfish. I'm going first, you know. So I, you know, she can, she can handle things on her own. I'm going first. So anyway, not planning on going today, but you never know about those things. So anyway, we, we get caught up in that. We love each other. You, you might have been rude to God before and thought, oh, my gosh, he's going to kill me. Guess what? He loves you. He knows you're a knucklehead. He loves you. He's big. He can take it. I'm not suggesting we continually be rude, and, but I think there's a place to Lord, I'm sorry. I was frustrated, whatever, and just mend that relationship up and go right on. Now, we don't always do love perfectly, but we want to keep growing. We want to keep growing. And we've got to keep tapping the love of God because his love is what's perfect. Our love isn't perfect. Most of our love is generated around, I'll be kind to you as long as you're kind to me. I'll be loving to you as long as you're loving to me. But God, Jesus always working on the inside, says, I want to take it further. I want to take it further than that. I want you, and I say this every time, this is so beautiful. This, this is tender. It touches our hearts as long as we never have to do it. Listen to the beauty of these words, seriously. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who purposefully and despitefully use you. You hear those words flow from Jesus' mouth in Scripture, you go, that's beautiful, until you get an enemy, until someone curses you, until someone purposefully, despitefully use you, and then you find out, whoo, there's a different kind of love I'm going to have to tap inside here somewhere. But it comes from God, and we're able to. We're able to love him more deeply and know him more deeply. You say, well, how am I going to love Jesus more? Start meditating on his goodness. Start meditating on his beauty. Start meditating on his majesty and on his power, his kindness to you. We had the communion table out here last week. Meditate on that. He loved us so much, he left the glories of heaven. I don't, we, we can't even comprehend all the glory he left. To wrap himself in a human body, God, for the first time, sweated, had to bathe, got hungry, got weary, got tired. You know, all those things. He, he experienced all that. And, and meditate on his goodness and kindness to us and how much he loves us. And we'll, we'll find out we love him too. Look at the beauty of his creation. Never look at a starry sky without just marveling at it and going, God, you are amazing. Just kind of makes you fall more in love with him. Just think and meditate and pray. I'll tell you what else, honestly, for me anyway, good, beautiful worship music. Now, I, and I don't care, great hymns do that to me too. It's not just, oh, we've got to listen to modern contemporary. No, great hymns. I'll sing those great hymns. I go, oh my goodness, you can get a biblical education in these hymns. They are so solid with so much truth and so much reality. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste mm, of glory divine. 
heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Whew. Woo! You start thinking about that, and you go, oh my goodness, I love you, Jesus. I love you. Good music to worship and proclaim his glory. So, love. I saw this, and I wanted to share some with you. The gr group of children once asked, what does love mean? You'll see some natural examples that you can apply to spiritual things. Rebecca H. said, When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Wow. Self-sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? Billy, age four, said, When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. Whew. I love Billy, four years old. Listen to this line. It, it moves me. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. <sighs> oh, your name is safe in Jesus' mouth. Remember when Mary went to the tomb and she couldn't find Jesus and she see, thinks she sees the gardener and she says, please, Show me where he is. And he said, Mary. Oh, read the story. She just melts. She, she's with the risen Savior. Your name is safe in his mouth. And you know what I think? His name should be safe in our mouth. We were watching something the other day. It's, you know, PG kind of show. And I said, I am saddened how many times I said, Jesus they didn't even just say God. They specifically said Jesus. Or they didn't say good Lord. They said Jesus and used Jesus' name, not as worship. And not as a good thing. I said, I, I don't like that. His, his name should be safe in our mouth. Amen. It should be used to glorify him and praise him. Here's another one, Bobby. Bobby, seven years old, says, Love is what's in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. <laughs> That's good. Nikki, six years old, says, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. <laughs> That'll preach, Nikki. Yeah. <laughs> Tommy, six, says, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. That's sweet. The only thing I know about Tommy, who's six years old, is that when he sees a couple that's 30 years old, he thinks, oh, that old little couple there, you know, because that's what six-year-olds think. So I always wonder, I'd like to see your, your old couple you're thinking of. Cindy, eight years old, says, during my piano recital, I was on stage, and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me, and I saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that, and I wasn't scared anymore. That's love. Jessica, eight years old, says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. Uh, good advice, Jessica. Those are just beautiful things about love. About love. Do you love Jesus? Say it a lot. Let him know it a lot. Now, sometimes people may say, well, you know, people just get tired of hearing that. I don't know anyone who you love or loves you who will get tired of hearing that they're loved. I don't know any, I, I can't imagine God saying, okay, you've told me you love me nine times today, that's enough, I don't want to hear that anymore. No, that's a beautiful thing. And you wouldn't mind if Jesus told you 
a hundred times a day that he loved you. So let's remember these insights. Number one, how do you see yourself? Watch your identity and find it in Jesus, not in, not in something of this world. And I hope you enjoy all the things I've mentioned in this world. I hope you travel and enjoy things and get promotions at work. And, that, and God has no problem with that either. Just don't find yourself worth in that. Find yourself worth in who you are in Jesus. I also want to remind you of the benefits of living right, righteousness. There's rewards to righteousness that God created. We're not just being greedy that we see these. God created them. And we need to know that, the benefits of living right. And the third one is keep growing in our love for Jesus. Just keep growing and keep growing in our love for Jesus. Put these things into practice. Put them into practice this week. Put them into practice for the rest of your life. And watch yourself grow in how you behave and respond with your attitude, your actions, your deeds, your thought life, and everything because you're starting to see yourself differently. And there's something about us. We really don't like living, behaving, thinking, and acting inconsistent with how we see ourselves. And so we need to see ourselves in Christ.